Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, I am going to explore the history of the Grand Army of the Republic. It's a fascinating history, and it's one that uh, had a profound impact on the future of all present-day veterans organizations and groups. So it's an interesting history, and I've been wanting to do this episode for quite a long time. So let's explore this fascinating history together. So the Grand Army of the Republic, often referred to as the GAR, was an organization created by the Union veterans of the Civil War. The GAR existed from 1866 to 1956. During the 90 years of its existence, over 10,000 GAR veteran posts were formed. Within Michigan, 512 posts were formed. And today, Michigan's GAR Memorial Hall and Museum is the only museum in Michigan exclusively dedicated to the memory of the Union veterans of the Civil War and the fraternal veteran organization that founded it in which they participated. And that is located over in Eaton Rapids. So if you ever get a chance to get over there and tour that museum, I will put the link to the museum itself in the description. And it is a fascinating place to tour. You're definitely going to want to take a little bit of time when you're there because there are a lot of exhibits and artifacts to take a look at. So let's take a look at really the core of what the Grand Army of the Republic was about. In early 1866, the United States of America post-Civil War, was now a secure nation again. The war was over, the Union had won. And it was awakening to the reality of recovery from war, especially a very prolonged war, on its own soil. This had been a much more different war than in previous generations of wars. In previous conflicts, the care of the veteran warrior was the province of the family or the community from which the uh, soldier had come from. Soldiers then were friends, relatives, and neighbors who went off to fight until the next planting or harvest. So if you look at the records of the War of 1812, for example, most of the length of terms of service was under three months. It was very similar with the Revolutionary War and other types of conflicts prior to the Civil War. The length of enlistment was much shorter than it was in the Civil War. The Civil War, these men were gone for anywhere from a year to four years or longer. So by the end of the Civil War, the unit and the family units were less homogenous. There was less there was a lot more dispersal across the nation, particularly in the South as well as on the eastern states where a lot of the conflict had occurred. And men from different communities and even different states had been forced together by the exigencies of battle. And there were new friendships and lasting trusts that were forged as well. So it wasn't just about a unit from a particular state. Many, many of these state units as the attrition of war went on, were merged with other units to form different battalions with the surviving members of the units. So the advances in the care and the movement of wounded, many of whom would have surely died in earlier wars, these new wounded soldiers were now returning home to be cared for by the community. And the community itself didn't have a structure in place 
It was very weary from the protracted war, and it also faced the needs of widows and orphans from the war. So veterans needed jobs, including a whole new group of veterans, the colored soldiers and his entirely newly freed family. It was often more than the fragile fabric of a community could bear. So state and federal leaders from President Lincoln down had promised to care for those who had borne the burden, his widows and his orphans. But they had little knowledge of how to accomplish this task. And there was also little political pressure to see that any of those promises were kept. For the soldiers that were fortunate enough to have returned home alive... They came home with many emotions from the experience, from happiness to guilt for having survived the war. Perhaps, probably one of the most profound emotions experienced was that of emptiness. Men who had lived together, fought together, forged together, and survived had developed a unique bond that could not be broken. So as time went by, the memories of the filthy and vile environment of camp life began to be remembered less harshly and eventually more fondly. The horrors and the gore of the battlefield with the smoke and the smell of black powder were replaced with the tears for the departed comrades. Friendships had forged in battle and survived the separation, and the veterans missed the warmth of trusting companionship that they had felt during the time of the conflict. So with all of that as a background, groups of men began joining together, first for camaraderie and then for political power, emerging the most powerful among the several hundred veterans organizations that came into existence would be ultimately the Grand Army of the Republic, GAR, which by 1890 would number over 400,000 veterans of the War of the Rebellion. So the GAR was founded in Decatur, Illinois on April 6, 1866 by Benjamin F. Stevenson. Its membership was limited to honorably discharged veterans of the Union Army, Navy, Marine Corps, or the Revenue Cutter Service forerunner to the Coast Guard, who had served between April 12, 1861 and April 9, 1865. The community-level organization was called a post, and each was numbered consecutively within each state or department as they were formed. Most posts also had a name, and the rules for the naming included that the requirement of the honored person be deceased and that no two posts within the same department could have the same name. The departments consisted of the local posts within a state, and at the national level. The organization was operated by the elected camaraderie-in-chief. So the official body of the department was the annual encampment, which was presided over by the elected department commander, senior and junior vice commanders, and the council. Encampments were elaborate multi-day events, which often included camping out, formal dinners, and memorial events. National encampments of the GAR were presided over by the commander-in-chief, who was elected in political events, which rivaled national political party conventions. 
As with the Department of Encampments, the senior and junior vice commander-in-chief, as well as the National Council of Administration, also were elected at the National Encampment. So all of that information I've taken from the GAR Museum website, and it's a lot to take in, obviously, on a podcast, and it's a lot to digest. But essentially, it was a very structured organization, and from the top down, they had departments and each of the departments represented usually a state, and then they had different posts, which were in various cities all over that state, and there was kind of a hierarchy of different organization. It was a pretty well-organized group. It's probably why it rose above other attempts at veterans organizations of the time period. So during the 90-year existence of the GAR, over 10,000 local GAR posts were created, including seven GAR posts in foreign countries. Five were in Canada, one was in Mexico City, and one in Peru. Presumably the ones in Mexico City and Peru were veterans that decided to move there after the war. National encampments were very large sometimes, bringing in between 20,000 to 30,000 veterans to the host city for an entire week. Early on, during the existence of the GAR, the United States presidents often attended and spoke to the membership. Although designed to be nonpartisan, the GAR became quite influential in terms of national and state politics and legislative matters. Five GAR members were elected president of the United States, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Harrison, and McKinley. For a time, it was impossible to be nominated on the Republican ticket without the endorsement of the GAR voting bloc. Within state government, the GAR was even more influential. The GAR founded soldiers' homes and was active in relief work and pension legislation. So before the GAR, there really wasn't an organization or a body pushing for pensions for the surviving soldiers and their widows, and there was really uh, no veterans organization or any kind of relief to help the wounded veterans. So the GAR made that possible and used their influence to provide those benefits, particularly to the wounded and the orphans and the surviving widows of the Civil War. They also used their influence to bring equality to the black soldiers that were returning home and making sure that they had employment as well as respect and pensions themselves because the first attempts from the government pensions that were introduced were going to deny the black soldiers and it was the GAR that stepped up and said no, they fought just as hard as we did and they are going to get their pensions because they were Union soldiers. So you could say that the GAR had a profound impact on the moral compass affecting the life of the post-war period for soldiers of all demographics in the Union Army. So in 1868, Commander-in-Chief John A. Logan issued a General Order Number 11 calling for all departments and posts to set aside the 30th of May as a day of remembering for the sacrifices of fallen comrades thereby beginning the annual celebration of Memorial Day across the country. The GAR also was instrumental in helping to establish the Spanish-American War veterans, the American Legion, and the veterans of foreign wars, all organizations that came after the GAR formation. 
In fact, these organizations in their infancy often met in conjunction with the GAR. With membership limited strictly to the veterans of the late unpleasantness, as the GAR often referred to the Civil War, they ultimately encouraged the formation of allied orders to aid them in their various works. So numerous male organizations were brought into existence that were backing the GAR, and the political battles became quite less severe after the GAR endorsed the Sons of Veterans, 1881 and later, and the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. A similar but less protracted battle took place between the Women's Relief Corps, the WRC, in 1883, and the Ladies of the Grand Army of the Republic, the LGAR which was founded in 1883. So essentially all of these allied organizations of people that were affected by the Civil War, the sons and the daughters and the women, all these organizations outside of the GIR became affiliate organizations and they all tended to work together, especially when it came to um, political influence in Washington. So the final encampment of the Grand Army of the Republic was held in Indianapolis, Indiana, in 1949, and the last member, Albert Wilson, died in 1956 at the age of 109 years. So that was quite a legacy of a 90-year organization of veterans. Now, in the state of Michigan, the GAR posts were founded and formed between the years 1866 and 1869. There were 49 local posts chartered during that time period. Now, there was as mentioned earlier in this podcast, there were a total of 512 GAR posts formed in Michigan over the years, which is quite incredible. And just going down the list of the various posts that were formed in southwest Michigan alone, there was Allegan County, which had several uh, GAR posts, looking at about a dozen or more. Barry County had about 10. Berrien County had another eight or nine. Branch County had another eight. Calhoun County had about nine different posts. Cass County had about 11 different posts. Eaton County had approximately 10 posts. Ingham County had about nine posts, and Ionia County had about 12. Jackson County had roughly about nine posts. Kalamazoo had six. Kent County had seven. And Hillsdale had roughly about 15 different posts. And that's just kind of a snapshot of the general quantity of posts. All across the state of Michigan, there were a multitude of GAR posts in every county. Uh, even in St. Joseph had uh, another 10. So when you look across the state of Michigan and in southwest Michigan, there were a lot of these different posts. And when I talked to the Grand Army of the Republic Memorial Hall and Museum staff, they talked to me about the demographics of the posts. There were some that were entirely black, and that was by their own choice based on where they lived. And then there were many that were integrated, and there were some that were smaller than others. Some had large numbers of membership. So they varied geographically from all over the state, and the same thing with all over the U.S., so in addition to the national encampments, which not all the veterans were able to travel to go to those types of events, there were state-level encampments and also county-level encampments and events that were held by the GAR over the various years. 
And that kind of gave birth to what you see today with these Civil War encampments. Many of those reenactors are descendants of the earlier members of the GAR. Now, if you've listened to some of my earlier podcasts, one of my guests mentioned about the displacement of cannons after the Civil War in the years that followed. A lot of the cannons that were in the storage of the United States government were made available to the different GAR posts. So you have these Civil War cannons that were shipped all over the country, and many of the GAR posts had cannons that were placed uh, in various places around the community, oftentimes outside their meeting place or in a city park uh, and dedicated as part of a GAR ceremony. Um, There are examples of some of these cannons that still exist. There's some over in St. Joseph, for example. There used to be one at Oak Hill Cemetery for many years, and there's old photographs of it. And in Oak Hill Cemetery, that cannon was turned into scrap metal during World War II. There are cannons at the GAR Park in Eaton Rapids in the park there, and you can still drive by and see them there. At present time, the park there, they're not holding events at the GAR Park. Apparently, the park is in a state of renovation of some sorts. When I've gone by there, it looks like the parks and rec of the city of Eaton Rapids have been working on the bridges and some of the things related to the park, and I think that had started during 2020 or 2021 and it's just been delayed um, probably because of funding and that sort of thing but that project is ongoing but there is a GAR park that is uh, used quite frequently over the years by the Grand Army the Republic Museum and they would hold reenactment events uh, teaching young children about uh, the Civil War. And once again, you can find information about that on their website. So chances are, if you've driven around anywhere in Michigan or even in the eastern United States and you've seen a Civil War cannon somewhere, there's like, for example, there's one in Coldwater. Um, I can think of many off the top of my head that I have seen around uh, the state as I've traveled. Those were uh, distributed through some kind of a GIR organization, most likely. And, given in, and they were given to the municipalities to be placed in city parks. And you will also see them out in front of GAR buildings. In Marshall, Michigan, for example, the old GAR hall that was there is now one of the historical society buildings. And there's a cannon out front of that. So over the years, as the GAR numbers dwindled, artifacts and relics and things related to the Grand Army of the Republic were donated to the museum that was in Eaton Rapids. As GAR post folded and the last members died off, the artifacts related to the various posts would be sent over to the GAR museum. And if you go to the GAR museum, you're going to see flags from several different um, GAR posts around the state. I I was surprised when I was there to see a Battle Creek GAR post flag hanging there prominently inside the museum. And I noticed a few other communities that are there. Now, sometimes those artifacts get sent to local museums within the community, so they don't always find their way to the GAR museum. But apparently the one in Battle Creek had sent all their artifacts over there when the post eventually dissolved. And another interesting thing about the GAR Museum, it was a building that was built by the members of the GAR. And it is an Italianate two-storied red brick structure, which originally had a balcony. If you look it up online, you can see where the remnants of the balcony once was. Above the second-story windows and doors is a recessed brick area 
with the letters G-A-R in the building. So the building's interior floor plan was a simple on the first floor, having been a largely open space that was often rented out in those days to local merchants to financially support the G-A-R post during that time period. Today it is an open area where they do lectures and presentations and they hold events and they raise money every time uh, they hold an event and all that money goes to support the continuance and preservation of the museum. And the museum hosts special events on national holidays, particularly Memorial Day and the 4th of July. So it's well worth the time to pay a visit there. And if you're in the area, take some time to go look, particularly in the summertime, take some time to, to at least try to go see the GAR Park as well in Eaton Rapids. And a lot of the events that they hold throughout the week, if you follow their calendar on their website, are speaking engagements with people talking about different aspects of the Civil War and post-Civil War period in the United States. So many of the topics are very interesting, and you'll find that you're uh, kind of get hooked if you start going there. So I've got a calendar that I follow with them. I've been to one speaking engagement, and I have a few other dates marked on my calendar for attending future talks there because it's just a fascinating um, chapter of history, and you get to hear from a lot of different historians. And the Civil War had such a profound impact on Michigan as well as many of the other states that were involved in it. Uh, Michigan sent a lot of men to the Civil War, and um, there's a lot of history up here following that. And the Grand Army of the Republic was a big part of the post-Civil War period here in Michigan. So if you're ever in Eaton Rapids, you should certainly pay a visit to the Grand Army of the Republic Memorial Hall and Museum. So that's going to conclude today's podcast episode talking about the history of the Grand Army of the Republic. And I touched a little bit on the GAR Museum and Memorial Hall as well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to take some time to leave a review on whatever podcast app that you are listening to. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can contact me through the website, michaeldelaware.com. I'd be very happy to hear from you. And until next time, when we take another journey into another chapter of Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past, thanks for coming along. I hope you'll join me next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.